the messenger, the message, and the community. So far, we've come down to uh, looking at the biblical basis of community, and now we want to talk a little bit about changing community and helping people move from one community into another. Now, all of us have experienced community of some sort, and some of us have experienced a close community. Remember that the messenger doesn't just call for people to believe his message. He is also calling for people to join his community. It is part of the message that we offer. And therefore, we must be aware of the community that we represent. Now, all of us are part of community. We're all part of this group, this support group we have that helps us live our lives. And so we need to examine and recognize our community. And believe it or not, most of our communities are closed. That means they're not really interested in having other people join our community. I have a friend who is a uh, pastor of a Presbyterian church, and then he joined a mission agency, was overseas for 10, 15 years. He came back home, he had retired, and so he decided uh, where he had retired, there was a Presbyterian church close by, and I have nothing against Presbyterians, just as the example, and he went to that church. I saw him a few years later, I said, how are things going with your church? Oh, he said, I'm having, having a hard time working my way in to get to know people in this church. I saw him a few years after that, I said, how's it going? He said, finally, it's taken us seven years to work our way into this community where we are accepted and feel part of it, and they're part of us. And we had to invite them to our home. We had to do things. In other words, we had to work really hard to become part of that community. So many of our communities are quite closed. We have our group of friends. We have those people we interact with, and we're not really interested in adding a lot more people to the communities that we're part of. Now, the form of community is not an issue here. The issue is basically looking at our own community and defining it. How would you define your community? How closed is the community that you're part of? How many communities are you a part of? Because most of us are part of several different communities. Now, sometimes seekers, especially seekers from Islam, they turn back here because they are interested in community. And if they like the community, they might be willing to learn more about it. But if they don't like the community, they may reject it. Now here's an important question. When we are doing our work as communicators of the gospel, we talk about evangelism, discipleship, and community. Now what order do these come in? Because generally I was always taught to believe you go out and do evangelism, and then you a disciple the people you've won, and then you form them into communities. And so this is what we're encouraged to do, is to go out and do that. So it's always evangelism, discipleship, and community. And so as I went out to do my ministry, I was very interested in how do I share the gospel with my Muslim friends? How do I do evangelism? I hadn't thought much about discipleship, and I had never even entertained any ideas about community because I was interested in evangelism, and this was a tough job, so it was going to take me a while before I ever got there. So we usually think we have to do evangelism, discipleship, and then community. But I want to suggest that there might be another way of doing this. Could it be different? And in many cases, we may start with community then disciple people, and then lead them to Christ. Is it possible to do it that way? Wow, that doesn't sound 
right at all, does it? Sounds very backwards to a lot of us, but in many times, this is what happens. Is there a biblical model for this that we can go to and look at it? What we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that Paul says, you know, um, you know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes. And then he said, we left Thessalonica, we went over to Achaia, and we didn't have to preach at all because they had already heard about what God was doing in Thessalonica. So God was at work in the community, and people saw the community, they were attracted to it. When Paul showed up, they were ready. Because they'd heard about community, they investigated about the community, learned what Christians believed, and then when he showed up and preached the gospel, they said, yes, this is what we want. Because the community had been their basis of of witness. This is what I call community-based evangelism. You are not just sharing the gospel as an individual. It is coming from your community. People are looking at this group of believers and they're saying, wow, this is amazing. When we were out there in the desert, we had some of our team members help us move out to the house we were in. And we had, um, we had a Brazilian. We had Singaporeans. We had Koreans. And we had um, people from all different kinds of countries. And they all, you know, the guys got together and we loaded furniture onto the truck and the ladies uh, showed up and they cleaned the house before we got there and we moved all the furniture in. And later our neighbors were saying, who are all those people who helped you move? And I said, well, they're, they're, I said to them, actually, I said, well, they're all my brothers and sisters. They said, what? I said, yeah, they're my brothers. They said, no, they can't be because one was Asian and one was black. And so how can they be your brothers and sisters? Then I had to explain to them, this is my family. This is my community. They were amazed. This is community. This is your group, all from all these different countries. And they were attracted to what we believed and did because they saw this international functioning community and they found it attractive. And so they wanted to know, well, who are you? What do you believe? And so we could start to share with them what we believed and uh, what we did. And then they're interested to hear more of our message. So we began with community. Then we did some discipling and telling them all about what Christians believed. And finally, we ended up presenting the gospel and inviting them, would you like to join our community? So we can move from community to discipleship to evangelism backwards to what we uh, tend to do today. Now, many Muslims, when they look at our community, they want to join our community. In some cases, the missionary community looks very inviting. They look and they say, wow, look at the houses those missionaries live in. They have nice things. They drive nice cars and they they have nice homes that they live in. Everyone in that community has nice belongings. And look at the schools they send their kids to. All of them in that community send their kids off to nice schools. And look at the holidays they take and the places they go to. And uh, look at the friends they have. And they look at us and say, well, they have good friends. These are people who stand by them. And they have, you know, they look at, and the community is exciting. And, And then they say, well, all the people in that community, they all take flights overseas every couple of years. They're going places. Wouldn't you like to be part of that community? And it's kind of like, let me in. I want to be part of this community. And then they discover that they can't be part of the missionary community. Because in order to get the nice house, you have to have supporters. And in, support, in order to get the schools, everything else, you've got to have these supporters. In order to get supporters, you've got to be part of an organization. In order to be part of the organization, you've got to go to Bible school. In order to go to the Bible college, uh, you got to, it's, it's a huge hurdle they have to draw, jump over. And I've known a few who have done it. 
They have done the seminary and they've done all this work and they have worked really hard and it's taken them years because they wanted to join that warm, loving Christian community that they saw the missionaries had. And that their desire was to join that community. But uh, usually they're disappointed. As new believers, they're disappointed because you know what? That's not what the missionary wants. The missionary wants them to meet people they don't know, people from other families, people from other tribes and clans, and then they discover something more interesting. The missionary says, now you little miserable group of people that don't know each other from different families, you should all form community and look after one another. And they don't know how to do it. And they're not even sure they want to do it. They're not even sure about who this other guy is from this other family. And they know all the history that's between their two tribes and everything else. And so these people drawn from... And it looks impossible. And they may walk away, not because they didn't have a messenger, not because they didn't believe the message, but because the community was impossible for them and they didn't feel they had a community that they could join. This is a reoccurring pattern that happens over and over and over again. We bring someone to Christ and they're Christians for a while and they drift away. And it's because we're not offering them Christian community. It's because we put all the emphasis on evangelism, on apologetics, maybe even on discipling, and we've ignored community. And when we get to community, we haven't prepared for it, and the believers who are there wander away and they leave. And so community must be an important aspect of all of the work that we do. And there's lots of problems to this. Do we create a brand new kind of community? Do we work with an existing community? Do we transfer our own ideas of community over? And so forth. So, but before we look at all of those, we have to ask ourselves, what is the process? When somebody changes from one to another, what might they go through? Try to put yourself in the mind of a Muslim. Maybe a young man or a young woman. And you've met someone. What is the process that they go through? And what is the process that we go through as missionaries, as we are encouraging them in what they do? So the first thing we must think of is that we must move from being accepted as just a neighbor or a friend to becoming a messenger. That's why we started there. We need to learn who are we? How do we fit in the community? What's our role in society? And so forth. And we need to look at how are we seen and can they see us as holy people? Build those bridges into other people's lives. Re establish rapport with them and allow others to see godliness in our lives and, and so forth. And we need to s look at what are the evidences of godliness in, in their culture and then do, can they see that in my culture and are they valid me. Like a Muslim man who's religious, he attends ceremonies and he reads the, and chants the Quran and he has special clothing and maybe has a red in his beard or whatever. Now, how do I uh, portray that I am a follower? I'm religious and I'm a person who's a follower of Christ and so forth. So I want to be accepted as a messenger and I want to be accepted as a religious person. If I have devotions from my Bible, do they know I read my Bible? Do they ever see me read my Bible? Do they ever see me pray? Do they know that I fast? Do they know that, uh, how I practice my Christian life? So what are the lists of godliness that I want to demonstrate or allow to be demonstrated to them? So that is the important issue. How do, I, how do they see that I am a religious person? Very, very important if I am to move on to ever be able to share my message.
So what is my role in society? How do people see me? Do they perceive me as a religious person or as a secular person? Do they see me as an outsider or as an insider? Am I far or am I near to them? Now, I am a cross-cultural communicator. So my job is not just to come into their culture and live and be absorbed in their culture. My job is to bridge cultures. My job is to be a bridge from the Christian message so the Muslim can understand it. I can never fully become a part of a Muslim culture. I'm always a bridge. There was a story told of a man in India, and he decided he was going to try to become as Indian as possible. He was a white guy from England. And so he uh, decided he would dress as an Indian, and he would walk like an Indian, and he would just do everything like an Indian. And everywhere he went, everyone said to him, Sahib, Sahib. And he's like, what? This is teacher, you know? And so he said, well, what do I do? I don't want to be seen always as Sahib. I want to be, I want to be one of them. So he decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to move down to the poorer section of town. I'm going to have a house just like their house. And uh, they still called him Sahib. So he said, okay, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to get a job like they have. So he went out and got a job on a road crew, working with a shovel and a pickaxe. And they still called him Sahib. Sahib. So he's like, well, how, what am I going to do? So finally he went to a wise person and he said, look, you know, what do I do? And the wise person, well, actually the, on his work team there, he asked him, what should I do? And he said, you still use a toothbrush. So he threw away the toothbrush and he used a stick to clean his teeth and he ate their food and he slept with them and he lived like them and they called him Sahib, Sahib. So he went to a wise lady once and he said, what do I do? How can I become like an Indian? And she said, why can I not become an Indian? And she looked at him and she said, because your mother was white. And that's something he couldn't change. And he realized his role was not to be one of them. His role was to bridge into their community enough that they could see in him Jesus Christ. That's my role as a minister. I am bringing Jesus to them. So they must see Jesus alive in me. They must see Jesus alive in my community. So I need to think, how are they seeing me? How are they perceiving me? Can they see Jesus? And if they can see Jesus, they will be attracted to that Jesus. And so my job is to actually die to self and allow Jesus to be revealed through me. I'm to be like a transparent window. You know, if you go into church and you see a stained glass window, you need to see there's saints in those windows there, but it's the sun shining through that makes them attractive. And we need to die to self. It's less of me and more of him. And so that they can see Jesus, because they won't be attracted to me. But if they see Jesus in me, they will be attracted to the Jesus they see in me and in functioning in my community. So I really need to work at, can they accept me as a valid messenger? As they see who I am, we need, they need to work at that. So that's the, the basis that they we're starting at. But once they accept me as a valid messenger, then they will begin to listen to my message. They'll begin to hear what I have to say. And now the question comes, is my message understandable? That's why we spent several lessons looking at worldview and how to communicate the gospel and where to start at, because this is important that they understand the message. What is the vocabulary I use? What is the language I use? What are the stories that I tell, the proverbs that I include in it? Is this uh, uh, something that they can clearly understand and they can say, I understand the gospel message you're calling me to do? But so now, now they're starting to listen. Then the question immediately becomes, well, who will I join? 
If I decide to follow this message, who is the community that I will join? Who are these people? And the question comes, is this a valid community for me? And that question must be answered. And so we have to make sure we understand that community is important. And before you start your evangelism, I believe it's important you define your community. Because community questions are going to come up very, very, very quickly. So you're going to have to ask questions about your community. And you're going to have to ask and, and analyze your community. And so look at your church. Look at this fellowship of believers that you're going to invite Muslims into and decide how this is going to work. And decide how, it's, um, how it works and, and map it out. Draw out the strategies. This is how my community works. And then uh, you can decide about it. Once I was in Ireland and I was going to a charismatic Catholic church. I, we just heard about this service. I thought this is interesting. I like different things. So I went to the service. And when we got there, half an hour before the service, there was singing going on. So we got there, we enjoyed some singing. And then a man got up and he said, now, some of you are new here. If you are new and you may not understand what you're going to see here tonight, we invite all the people who have never been here before to just slip into the side room. And for the next 10 minutes while the singing is going on, we're going to explain to you what is going to take place in this meeting. Wow. They had a method of explaining the community and what was taking place so new people could understand what was taking place. So this is an important question. How do people enter your community? When I was in Ireland, I worked with a group uh, that were brethren, a brethren assembly. And some people call these the closed brethren because on Sunday morning, they had a breaking of bread service and I would go to the breaking of bread service, but no one else was invited. No outsiders were invited to this service. In fact, the sign on the church never told you that there was a breaking of bread service at this time because outsiders were not welcome. If you were going to get into that service, you had to bring a letter of reference from elders in your assembly that they would let you into their breaking of bread service. So you might say, what kind of church is that? But they were a church that knew how people entered their community. What was interesting is in the afternoon, they would go out doing door-to-door. -door. They would do beach evangelism. They would, they would go out into the marketplaces. They would go out and talk to people, and they would invite people to come to the church at 7 o'clock. Now, at 7 o'clock, they had what they call a gospel meeting. And so this was a meeting they put on for the community. Remember, this is back in the 1970s. But this is how they grew. They put this meeting on for the community. So as new people came in, those new people were the focus of that meeting. The music was different. There was often a film or something that was more, um, you know, uh, wasn't just preaching. Nobody preached deep things from the Word. They shared the gospel, and then they had, uh, had tea afterwards or coffee and, and something to eat. And on the wall, they had a huge map of the city. And all over this map were pins or markers where they had Bible studies. And when they would meet people, you would bring our friends, and then they would say, where are you from? Oh, you're from this community. Come, and they'd take them over to the map and say, you live here. Oh, did you know there's a Bible study just so many blocks from your home? And let me introduce you to the leader of that. And they would go find the leader of that, and they would introduce them to the leader of the Bible study. And so they would get to meet that, and they'd start attending the Bible study. They might attend that Bible study for several months, 
Maybe they would become believers there and they would attend the Bible study. Their church experience was still the Bible study and the gospel meetings on Sunday night. They weren't told about Sunday morning service because they weren't invited. And then they were told you would be mentored. And so one of the elders would mentor them. Men mentor men, women mentor women, mentor women. And then uh, they would spend time. They would have questions. They would have things they'd have to work through. They were expected to spend one hour every night on their knees at their bed with the Bible open in front of them, praying and working through and learning from the Bible. After months of this mentoring, they were invited to be baptized. And when they were baptized, then they were told, now there's a special meeting for baptized believers on Sunday morning for breaking of bread. And then they were invited into the meeting of other believers. Now, I'm not advocating this is the best form of church. What I'm saying is this group of believers knew how a person enters their community. When they met someone, the person would say, uh, I'm going to this Bible study. Or they're not a member, well, get them into the Bible study. Because the road was you start from a Bible study, then you get saved and you get mentored, and then you get baptized, and then you're into here. And there were different meetings for different people. Not all the meetings for seeker services. Not all the meetings for, for the deeper believers. But they had different levels of meetings for different areas of the community. But they were aware of this set of progress as people joined their community. My question is, if you're in a church today and you ask the average church member, how does someone become a member of this community, how would they answer? Do they know the path into the, your community? Have you sat down and defined who is your community? What are they? What is the road that comes into your community? What is its culture? What is your structure? Now, many converts, many people seeking, or maybe not converts, but people looking at our community turn back because they come to the meeting and people don't accept them, they don't welcome them, they don't feel part of it, and they may leave at that very po point. So how do we get people to come in? Well, maybe they actually stay. So the second question that we have to look at as they come is Muslims may begin to attend our services. Maybe they are welcoming. So they will start to participate in the forms of the service. They may like to come and uh, we say stand to pray. We, they stand and they pray with us. They, they sing our songs. And uh, if you get into a Bible study, they may even pray. And they may uh, you know, they listen to us pray and they may follow suit and pray. Uh, they go through the forms. Now, we have forms in our churches. Every church is different. You know, so if you go to a church and they like to pray with their hands in the air, then the, the, your Muslim friends, they're going to pray with their hands in the air. They're going to copy whatever we do because they're copying the forms. We had to think about this when we went out to witness to the Bedouin. And as we were out there, we thought, well, when we pray, what do we do? Because they're going to do whatever we do. Whatever we teach them, that's the Christianity. These guys have never seen Christians before. However we act, they're going to assume that's how we act. So we had to agree among ourselves. When we prayed, we would hold our hands like this because this was at least something they understood as Muslims. They understood it as prayer. And the Bible does say lifting up holy hands. So when we put our hands like this, we'd close our eyes and we would pray. We'd look up. Everyone in the room had, <laughs> had their hands up and their eyes closed and peeking to see when it was time to look up. Um, but they would copy the forms that we have. So a, con uh, a seeker or someone who's exploring community, he will start exploring the forms of our community, and he's interested in our forms. How do we pray? How often do we pray? What do we say? How do we study and learn? You see, we study very differently than, than a Muslim. 
we've had Bible studies where we'd say, okay, let's uh, read this passage. And we get our Muslim friend to read a passage. And he reads it, and then we say to him, okay, what did that mean? And he goes, what? Mean? Yeah, what did that passage mean? Mean? I don't know. Well, read it again. So he reads it again. Da -da 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 -da. Okay. Now, what does it mean? Mean? He, he's, he, he's taught, and whenever you have Scripture, you never question it. You ask, what does it say? And you obey it, and you submit to it, but you never have a discussion about it. Your opinion and my opinion doesn't matter. We need maybe a teacher to help us, but it's authoritative. He never studies the Quran. He obeys the Quran. He's told what the Quran says, and he submits to it. But to sit down and actually question it and discuss it and throw around ideas, this is totally new. So he comes to our Bible study, and he's learning a new form of discussion and talking about things and, and delving into the Word and pulling out the meanings. This is all new to him. There's all the forms that he's learning. And then he sees how our services are conducted, when we stand and when we sit and what we do. We have lots of forms, give announcements, and the forms of our worship, standing, closing our eyes, raising our hands, or singing quietly, however we do it in our community. He learns the forms of our worship. He looks at how do we relate to elders. These are important forms. How do we treat the elders? Because in his community, treating elders is very important. So how do we treat the elders in our community? What honor are they given? What place, special place? Or does he have to treat them or so forth? He looks or she looks at how do we treat or relate to the opposite sex? This is a big one. Because very often, if you go uh, look at their lives, they're isolated from people of the opposite sex. And uh, it depends from culture to culture how much that isolation is. Perhaps he, he only knows his sisters and brothers and sisters. When we were in Yemen, we discovered many homes where the women and children lived in a separate building from the men. The men lived in the tower. The women were in the lower building. They didn't even talk to each other. In fact, they spoke different dialects of the same language because they never talked. So my wife had to learn a different dialect than I had to learn because I dealt with men, she dealt with women, and they never talked to each other. And so the men all slept in one huge room up top there, and underneath were three or four bedrooms. Those bedrooms were empty, and then a man would book one and send a message down, I want to see wife number three at three o'clock this afternoon, and she had an appointment. And when he was done with her, he sent her back to the harem, which is the women's section of the house, and he was in the men's. So maybe he's never related to the opposite sex. So he comes into our fellowship, and there are people sitting there, males and females, young people and older people. So he's very interested in how we relate to one another. And sometimes he or she might act inappropriately because they, they think there's freedom now to do whatever you want and uh, may have totally misunderstood the community and how it looks. So he's looking, learning, or she is looking and learning how we re where, where are the borders, what are the lines we can go to when we relate to people. Another thing that we look at is forms of dress. And he looks at, well, how do I need to dress? Do I need to have a suit and tie to join this fellowship? If everyone's dressed like this and I don't have those kinds of clothes, I can't be part of that community. So they're very aware of dress and how we dress and can they join the community or not. I've seen very few people dress up to go pray at the mosque. They clean up they wash their hands and so forth. They may have to shower before they go, but you don't necessarily have to dress up to go. So parts of our community, you have to dress up to go to some churches. 
They also look at how we celebrate our festivals. You see, in Ramadan, at the end of Ramadan, there's a festival, and there are ways of celebrating festivals. There are the Muslim feasts. These are very important times. When we were living out in the desert, we were there for a few years, and one day we were discussing, you know, we go and celebrate their feasts with them, but we've never celebrated our feast. In fact, usually Christmas or Easter, we went away to celebrate up in the city with somebody else. So we decided one time, let's celebrate our own feast. Let's kill a lamb. Let's put up a tent. Let's make mansef and let's serve it to all the people in the village so they can come and celebrate our feast with us. And so we did it. And guess what? People came and congratulated us and they celebrated our feast. And it was a wonderful time to tell them what the feast was all about. And we have two feasts in a year. We have a feast that celebrates when Christ was born. We have a feast that celebrates when Christ was raised from the dead. And oh, amazing. And so we would have time to explain our feasts. So they watch how do we celebrate our feasts. They look at how do we celebrate rites of passage like marriage, death, births, uh, going from a young man to becoming a, 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 an old accepted male in the community. When can you be accepted as a leader or someone who's, who's so forth? And so they're watching all of this in the community and they're participating in it. So here we have a question. If someone does all of these things, he prays with us and he prays well and hard, he says the sinner's prayer because it's part of the form of the community. He studies the Bible with us. He, um, he's in our services. He worships the Lord. He's respectful to our elders. He's learned how to treat the opposite sex. Um, he dresses nicely. He celebrates Christmas with us and everything else. Is this person a believer? This is where many missionaries or Christian workers get confused because they think this person is a believer. Because we think if they say a prayer and say, Dear Jesus, forgive me of my sins and I want to accept you as my Savior, that that makes them a Christian. He may not, might not even understand all what those words mean, but to say that, he might still be exploring the community, but we think he's a Christian. And as I've gone around into different fellowships, I've realized that this is one of the struggles we have as Christian leaders is identifying who is a Christian and who is not a Christian in our communities. Because we assume that when people are doing all of these things that they're believers. Because they're coming all to all of our meetings and they're reading the scriptures and they're praying with us. They look like believers. We assume they're believers. But the question is, has the Holy Spirit done that work of transformation in their heart and have they submitted to the Lordship of Christ? You see, they must move beyond the form of the message and they must now uh, enter into the power of the message to change lives. Now, the previous steps are usually initiated by the contact. Sometimes here, the teacher has to take the initiative. And we need to see a desire for the deeper things of God come into their life. They may have prayed this prayer of salvation, but it doesn't mean they're saved. They may have even been baptized, because some missionaries baptize at this point. And they'll do it as part of participating in the forms of the community, but they may not yet have submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And so the challenge is here, is this person actually having some spiritual dynamic happening in their life? Can we see the Holy Spirit entering in into the, the decisions that they make, into the things that are, are happening in their life? Are they truly saved? 
And are there these power encounters with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is changing their lives? Do we sense a real submission to the person of Christ? And these are questions that are hard to ask, but we need to look at it. Because as a person investigates the power of the message, if, the, if they are truly submitting, there is that transforming work of the Holy Spirit into their lives. So some of their cultural values will change. And transparency needs to happen here. So you can see them as followers of Jesus and their attitudes will change and so forth. Now, often at this point, testing happens. Now, testing is a normal process for many people before they submit to Jesus Christ. I mean, they've heard all about this. They've heard all about this and they want, they're going to end up testing. Are you a valid messenger? They may test, does this message really work for me? They may test, does this community really function? They may test, are, is there a real spiritual dynamic to all of this? And does the spirit world interact with my world? And so they're going to test this in some way before they submit. It's kind of like, imagine you're out on a, on a bridge. You ever seen one of those rope bridges that go from one canyon over a canyon? I've seen people try to cross them. There's a few boards and there's ropes. And you usually see them put their foot out and they test the first step because they want to see, will it hold me? And they may walk very slowly. After a while, they'll get confidence and move, but they will test that first step. And so when a Muslim is really coming to the place of joining our community, he will test us. He will test the step. And so when a test happens, don't be discouraged. It may seem like, well, he doesn't really believe. Why is he testing at this point? The important thing is that he is testing. And that tells you that he's thinking of putting all of his weight onto the bridge and stepping off of the cliff and trusting. So testing is an important aspect. Now there are six tests that we want to look at that, I, that we've seen. There may be more, but there are six things we want to briefly look at. Tests that we've seen Muslims test, uh, test us before they accept Christ. It's just a few things that, to illustrate this. The first one is um, the personal character test. This is when they test the messenger. They want to test that relationship. They want to test, are you a true friend? And so they may do it in different ways. I'll give you one illustration. Um, my friend, who was uh, the guy I often use as a teacher, um, we had a team meeting in his house. And so I talked to him and said, okay, if we meet as a team, and we're coming from different villages and towns, and we're going to meet in his house. I said, are you going to be able to clear your schedule? And so we have an afternoon, because we have a visitor from outside of the country coming. He's going to be sharing with us and teaching with us in the afternoon. So we need to somehow figure out, and we want to do it in your home, and can we do it? He said, I think we can do that. So he told all his friends two or three weeks beforehand, I have a visitor coming on that particular afternoon, you know, so I'll be busy and so forth. So everyone knew about it. And so his afternoon was cleared, so we all met in his house. And we met there, we sang some hymns, we ate some food, and then our, our guest speaker got up to share with us. And right about then, I saw out the window a young man coming over around and knocking on the door. So my friend got up and he went out of the room. And he was out probably about ten, five, ten minutes. And then his wife got a little nervous and she got up and she went out because if they have guests, she needs to make tea and serve tea. And my friend missed all of the teaching that took place that afternoon because he was in another room dealing with this guy. So afterwards I went to him and I said, um, boy, 
must have been really something like, who was this? He's always a young guy I've been dealing with. He's been coming to the meetings and he's been, you know, working. I'm not quite sure if he's in or out of the kingdom, but he's very, very close. I said, wow, was something really important happened, you know? that?" He said, no, not really. I said, did he know about the meeting? Oh, yeah, he knew about the meeting. Well, then why did he come at that point? He said, I think he came because he wanted to test our friendship. Was I more important than these foreigners? And later he told me that, was, that day was a crucial day in the life of that young man because in the weeks that followed were the time that he actually came to Christ. And later he testified and he said, I came to test you. I wanted to know, were you truly my friend? Was this truly somebody who, was I important to you or was I just somebody you knew and that your real friends were these other foreigners because you're a foreigner and they're the real friends? And I learned that you are an important friend. So they may test our personal character in some way. A second test is what I call the ethnocentrism test. And this has to do with our ethnic identity and who we are. This has um, a story I want to share of a friend of mine who is sharing the gospel, one of our, our workers, fellow workers, one day a young man came to him and said, some of us want to meet with you. We'd like to meet in a restaurant. And so uh, they told him what restaurant and what time. And so he said, sure, he'd meet him there. So later he went to the restaurant. Now our restaurants are a little different. And the main floor of the restaurant is all the men gather. So it's all full of men eating. Women and children and families gather upstairs. Well, these guys had picked a table upstairs. So when he came in, they said, come up, come upstairs. So he went upstairs, and they were sitting at a table near the edge of the restaurant, so it's kind of private, and they had an open window. And right beside them was the mosque. And uh, right about the middle of their conversation as they were talking, the call to prayer started. And it just blasted them because the... the the speaker was just across a narrow alley and it was aimed right at that window. And I mean, it would just rattle the window. The dishes shook on the table and they couldn't talk at all. And so they had to stop talking and one of these guys said, these stupid Muslims, why are they doing this? They shouldn't have this, you know, my, my thing doing this. And he just, all of them started to complain. And my friend felt a real check in his spirit. And he said, stop, stop, don't say that. He said, this is a Muslim country. They have a right to, to, their, to their call to prayer and to their mosque. We are not here to complain about it. True followers of Jesus, we don't, we don't argue and complain about those things. We must submit to the Lord and respect everybody. We need to respect them. They believe in that and they follow that. We have to respect that. We may not agree with it, but we need to respect them and their right to do that. He said that meeting was instrumental and pivotal in those young men's life. He found out later that all those complaints about the stupid Muslims and why did they do this, they wanted him to join them. And he said, because if he would join them and say, yes, they're all stupid Muslims, whatever, then they would say, ha. Ah. So it was a test to find out, do you think we're all stupid? Do you think our religion is stupid? Do you think our people are stupid? And when he refused to join them in their complaints, then he passed the test and, the, and they stood up. So they want to know, what do you really think about our culture and your culture? And do you think your culture is superior to our culture? And if we come in with an attitude, I am from the West and my culture is superior and everything else, we may end up failing the test and losing the brothers or sisters who want to come to Christ, but they, we fail the test of ethnocentrism. The next test is what we call the humanism test. And they will test us 
Do we think they have value? Do we accept everyone as having value? I remember once driving in a taxi and the man, the taxi driver had to screech to a halt because a lady ran across the street and he just started this thing about these dumb Arabs and these stupid people as, and he just tore into, you know, and I said, stop, stop after a while. I got tired of this. I said, don't say that. I said, in every country, there are good people and bad people. In every country, there are smart people and stupid people. There are people in my country that step out in front of the cars as well as in your country. It's, you know, that's, nobody has a corner of the market on stupidness or cleverness. We're all just human beings. We're all just normal people. Arabs are more clever or stupid than anybody else. We're all just human beings. It totally changed the conversation. Because you see, he wanted me to criticize and to think, I am better. And we are better than they are. So they may test us. Do we accept them as people? Another test is the materialism test. You see, we, at least as Westerners, I face this all the time because I have material goods. I have things that are important to me. And I worked hard for them. And I get goods and I hold on to goods. And we often have things we have for many years because we take care of them and maintain them and they tend to go through things very quickly. And are my goods more important to me than my neighbors? You know, one time we had neighbors, we had good friends, and uh, they would often send food to us on a dish. They would make food, and we would, you know, at mealtime, it would be a knock at the door, and one of the neighbors would say, here's some food for you to eat. And so we'd get a nice plate of food. It's what they had prepared. And so we would enjoy all this meal in our house, and then we had their dish. Now, you cannot return the dish empty. So my wife would bake some cookies or a cake and put it on there and send it back. Well, they like cakes and cookies. They couldn't get them in the markets. So they'd send us rice and beans, and we'd send them cakes and cookies. And we had this little exchange going on. Well, one time my wife thought, well, I'm making a special meal, so I'll put together a plate. Now, we had some corralware. This is, goes back a few years, and our corralware was special. We had brought this over from the West. You see, in their country, if you dropped a dish on the cement floor, it just smashed into a million people pieces. But if you dropped corralware, it wouldn't break. And so it was very special. And we had only a set of four. But my wife took this, and she took the corralware, and she put this food on it and sent it over to the neighbors. And the next day, we got food back from the neighbors on one of their plates. We didn't think much of it, but, you know, after the weeks went by, we hadn't seen our corralware dish. And then the second one went, and then the third one went. We only had one corralware dish, and my wife and I discussed this, said, well, we, we should actually go find out, because it's our set, you know, and it's, it's our, we sort of serve company on this, and we can't serve company because uh, we need their plate back. So my wife went over, and after a nice visit, sort of made an inquiry. Remember that food I sent over in my dish? Well, I wonder what happened to my dish. Oh, they said we made food on it and sent it to our neighbors, and they never sent it back. Oh, and then my wife said, I don't think so. I think I saw it in their cupboard. And then we had to decide what's more important, the spoiling of our goods or our relationships with people. And sometimes we can get so angry because we think our goods are at stake. Maybe they take advantage of us. Maybe the taxi driver charges us too much and we get really angry. Or maybe someone else, maybe God has brought that person across our path to witness to them, but we've been taken advantage of, and so we get very angry. You know, when someone takes advantage of me, I stop now and say, Lord, 
Why did you bring this person to my attention? I can take a million taxi rides and the man I will remember is the guy who takes too much money or charges me too much or tells me the meter doesn't work. Why is he coming to my attention? And so I have to realize perhaps God is something special in this, not to react angrily when I'm taken advantage of because I must allow the spoiling of my goods. It doesn't matter if it's for the kingdom of God and for furthering of his kingdom because it's God's goods, not my goods, that are at stake here. And God can replace those dishes and he can replace them 10 times over. That's not the important thing. The important thing is my neighbor and my relationship with my friends. Have I passed the materialism test? Then there is the spirituality test. And the spirituality test is, is there a valid spiritual side to what we say? On another occasion, my friend was dealing with some Muslim... um, young men and they were inquiring and they had been coming to the meetings and different things and at one point he got invited uh, up to a restaurant again and he was invited to this restaurant and I think sat up in the balcony it was just two of them he and this young man and this young man said you know I've been thinking and they were served their food they were eating he said you know you've talked a lot about the Christian message and all about Jesus and I should accept him and I should have him as my savior and else and, and you talk about relationship with God and you say that that you hear God's voice and God speaks to you he said I, I wonder about this he said so I have a question he said this week I talked to a friend of mine and I explained the gospel to him and he said the sinner's prayer and he asked Jesus into his heart and he's sitting down there in the restaurant remember they're sitting on the balcony looking at all these men he said I'm wondering if you could ask God who he is and if you could point him out to me So I want to know, does God talk to you? Now, what would you do? This is the test. How would you respond? I've had lots of students respond in there, don't test the Lord your God, and so forth. My friend said, this is how he responded. First of all, he said, Lord, what do I do? And then he said, Lord, this isn't about me. It's not about me as a messenger. This is about you, and this guy's doubting you or not doubting you. So he said, Lord, I'm going to look down there and the first man I see I'm going to point to. So you guide my eyes. So he turned over and said, is it that man over there? And he said, yes, it is. And then they went on with their conversation like nothing had happened. And at the end of that day, they invited this young man over to his house. They continued on and that week that young man came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He accepted the Lord, not just understood it, but accepted him as Lord and Savior. He'd been coming to the church, exploring it, but he wanted to know, is this message real? And sometimes they will test the spiritual part of our message. Lastly, there's the financial test. And they may test us financially. They may test the community financially. This happened in one community we were in, and a young man came. He had been attending for a number of weeks and months even, part of our Bible study and everything else. And one time he came to me after the service and he said, look, my sister's getting engaged and I was wondering if, if, if the church could, could loan me some money. I just need it till Friday because we have an engagement on Thursday. And so the big engagement party, we have to buy gold. We have to have all these guests coming. I get my paycheck on Friday, well, Thursday night. And so I, I, you know, we need to buy all this stuff beforehand. I will pay you Thursday night or Friday morning. So if, I just, just need just a three-day, four-day loan for this money. And so I said, well, that's not my decision because I'm not in charge of this group, but we can talk to the elders. The elders will meet, so I'll ask them, and I'll get back to you tomorrow. 
So we had the elders meeting. This is how we did it. And the elders got together because they control the purse of the offerings. And I explained, okay, this young man, he's getting engaged and he needs um, to get uh, you know, more, more of this money. It's just for three or four days. He'll pay it back on his paycheck. And somebody said, who is he again? Oh, that guy. My wife knows that family. I haven't heard of any engagement. So he says, let me call my wife. So he calls his wife. Do you know if they you know, no, his sister's not getting engaged. Oh, he's asking for money, but there's no engagement. So he lied to us. And he just wants to get money from us. And so the elders decided, we're going to go confront him. And they went and they confronted him and a big argument took place. It was a horrible situation. Later, he said, look, I was just testing to find out if I really become part of you, would you help me with my needs? So all I had was a little thing to find out, would you help me? Because I wanted to know, would the community be there to help me? You see, he's used to being part of a community that helps people. Um, one time my wife got into a service. This is a taxi that people take, like a bus route. And so you buy one seat. When she got in, the, the taxi driver um, was on the phone. And then he turned around to everybody in the taxi and he said, my friend is in the hospital and he needs an operation and we're raising money to help pay for the operation. Does anybody, could you give some money to the orange? And everybody reached in their pockets and gave him. Some maybe gave him 20 cents, some maybe a dollar, maybe two or three dollars, but they all gave him some money. And then after a while, he called up somebody in the hospital and he said, okay, I've got this much money. How much do you still need? And, and who else are you calling? And then the, the family, the whole community, this person's community was active in raising money to pay for the operation that he needed. And so everyone is out there trying to find the money because the community takes care of one another. What about our Christian community? Do we take care of one another? How do we do that? It's very, very important that we as Christians understand how does, our, how does our community function financially. The very fact that this uh, the person has to ask for money and needs to know if he will be taken care of tells me an important fact. It means that he doesn't know that. It's not evident in the community. So sometimes we as a church, we help somebody the church I go to now, they take a benevolent offering at communion time. But I never know where that money goes. I don't know who's helped. I never hear back with what they do with it. And so it's not obvious that we are helping people out who need help in the community. Somehow the new believer needs to see that as part of the community so he doesn't have to test it. Because if he sees it and understands it, he won't have the need to test that area. So how well we explain our community, depend, uh, that's, that will influence how much we are tested by people who are looking and exploring at coming part of our community. Because they are looking for warm, loving communities that they can accept them. So that if they, as they move out of their community of Islam and into this new community of faith of followers of Esau, that they will be loved cared, looked after, and supported in much the same way that they have experienced in their previous community. And so it's important to them that the community is there and it functions and they will test our community and they will make those steps as they come over. So, so far we've come up to making that ex exploration, looking at the forms and testing the community and then at that point hopefully they will accept the message of the community and become a member and a fully functioning part of the community.